I am Captain Matthew Gillespie of the Philadelphia Police Department Southwest Detective Division, and this is Aftermath Philadelphia. In this podcast, we host critical conversations with those involved in reducing the epidemic of gun violence in the city of Philadelphia. This podcast features candid episodes that highlight different thoughts and perspectives while offering strategies to lower the violence. I'm very excited in this episode to have Brandon Del Pozo. Brandon is a postdoctoral researcher at the National Institute of Health at the Warren Alpert Medical School for Brown University. Brandon is the former chief of police in Burlington, Vermont, and he's a 19-year veteran of the NYPD, retiring at the rank of deputy inspector. Brandon held positions in the NYPD, such as the commanding officer of the Office of Strategic Initiatives, the commanding officer for Project Management Office of the Police Commissioner, the commanding officer of the 6th Precinct in Greenwich Village, and the commanding officer of the 50th Precinct in the Bronx. We discuss his road from growing up in Brooklyn to attending Dartmouth University and back to the NYPD. How has his education helped or changed his mindset on policing, the opioid crisis, and use of force issues in today's policing? All right, everyone, welcome back. This is, I'm keeping with the NYPD uh, season two theme. I had uh, a few NYPD or former NYPD uh, members on, and this time I have Brandon Del Pozo. Brandon, I hope I, I said the last name correctly. That, that, that works. Okay. Brandon Del Pozo. Great. Um, yep. The former uh, police chief in Burlington, Vermont, for four years, we, we have in common. I'm in my 19th year in Philly. You did 19 years with the NYPD. Um, a few command level positions, to just say the least, I think, in the NYPD. If uh, I think the Bronx you were in, the 50th Precinct, correct? Yeah, the 5-0, yep. The, project ma- the CO of Project Management uh, in the Police Commissioner's Office, NYPD. Deputy Inspector, the CO of Strategic Initiatives, where you might have crossed paths with Deborah Peel, I think. Maybe. I did, yeah, you had her on, I was going to say. She's, uh, she's great, yeah. And now... Um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but a postdoctorate research fellow, if I'm saying that correctly, at Brown University, essentially? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And just as a point of pride, I also commanded the 6th Precinct uh, down in Manhattan. So okay. I commanded two. As a district commander, uh, yeah, no, I, I, you know, if you're bean counting, I commanded two precincts. And I say that because that was a hugely influential um, experience for my, my life, right? But anyway, and, and as we, a leader. We talked a little bit before. I, I mean, I commanded the 18th District in West Philly, so probably the hardest but the best position I've had in the police department. No offense to the detective bureau I oversee now, but patrol was really was where it's at. So I agree. Uh, Brandon, Absolutely. thank you for being here. I mean, I'm, honestly, I'm really excited to discuss policing in 2022, um, law enforcement versus or with a public health approach in dealing with some of the issues we spoke of. And... Um, we're going to unpack or at least try some of the opioid crisis, which is, you know, drug addiction and issues. But I have to ask this first, because um, traditionally, somebody that went to a great school like Dartmouth University 
in maybe the time period that you came on the job wouldn't necessarily go from Dartmouth to the NYPD. What brought you into policing uh, when you left the university? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, understand I grew up in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. It's where I was born. Um, I was the first person in my family to go to college, let alone uh, like a nice one. You know, that was sort of like, you know, a real fortunate turn of fate that um, the public schools lined up in a way that got me into Dartmouth. But, you know, I I didn't come from some uh, silver spoon or gilded background. My dad was a Cuban immigrant, um, came over on a plane, not the boat, but, Mm -hmm. you know, when Castro took over, went from Miami to New York, was drafted into the army, got out, meets a nice Jewish girl in New York City. 1974, um, I entered the world. So when I was in college looking at New York City, I mean, one of the reasons I I chose a college in New Hampshire was because New York City was terrible at the time. It was, I had a, a classmate that was killed by a stray bullet. I'd seen people get stabbed on the way home on the train. I was mugged twice. Once I had to spray Mesa kids and run for my life. So now I'm in college, you know, in a place that is in sort of the middle of nowhere. I don't have to lock my door. I see what it's like to have a nice peaceful existence. And um, I'm reading about Bill Bratton and Giuliani fighting crime. And it wasn't the way we see it now with a lot of self, you know, a lot of criticism of police tactics, people across a lot of races, classes, communities, you know, broadly supported something that was making New York City much, much, much safer than it was. Because frankly, uh, and even, you know, Chris Hayes, who's often a police critic, did a podcast with him. He grew up in the Bronx. He's like, yeah, it was a terrible time. Um, So when I was a senior, you know, I said, I don't want to be a consultant or a lawyer. What could I do? I said, oh, I'll join the NYPD for a few years. Um, A lot of kids on my block had done it as well. And um, and I'll take it from there. But it turned out to be a great job that really, instead of lasting a few years, lasted 19 plus, you know, four years as a chief in, in, in Vermont. So um, if you took out Dartmouth, everything else about my upbringing and, and background makes sense for becoming a cop. If you add Dartmouth, it's a little bit of a of a, you know, my grandmother would say, what the hell was that about? But, it, you know, it makes sense. I'm a kid from New York from the 70s. And I think it probably makes you a little more well-rounded. And, you know, I think from my experience, just to give LaSalle University a plug, even though I was on the eight-year program and LaSalle was in the, <laughs> is in Philadelphia, but, you know, to get an undergraduate degree in history and it just kind of, I said, wow, there's places in the world like this. And I had the opportunity to visit a few. Um but no, I get it. So we're talking like New York City, early, mid-90s, correct? Yeah, that's right. I mean, like I, I intimated, I, I was born in the mid-70s. So by the time I'm becoming like a, a teenager and a young adult, it's New York in the 80s and 90s. It was, uh, it's no exaggeration to say it was terrible. I had a black friend in middle school, Damien, and his parents like brought him into my school because it was a better school than the one in his neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And we used to talk about hanging out after school at each other's houses. Our parents wouldn't let us. His parents, because he was worried that um, with the racism in certain parts of Brooklyn, he'd get literally he'd get beat up at night. Wow. And Yusef Hawkins was a, an African-American who came to look at an ad for a used car in Bensonhurst. Check out the car. A bunch of kids thought he was there to date a white girl and killed him. Right. That was at night, not too far from where I lived. Um, so his mother's fear was not unfounded and then my mother's fear was like if you're going to go to flatbush on a friday night like there's going to be gunfire 
and there would absolutely be gunfire. It's yeah. just a question of where the bullets go. So this was the city that, like, for a lot of reasons, was segregated. It was, like, dysfunctional. Um, and when I could see the change happening with foot posts and, and um, the NYPD getting out there and, and, and making arrests for homicides and gun possession and, and getting people off the train safe. I wanted to be a part of that. I thought that was a great thing for the city. And I have to say, it's not revisionist history. A lot of people thought it was a great thing for the city, including uh, black and brown communities. Yeah, I mean, John Timoney, the former chief of the department, ended up being the commissioner here for a few years. Right. Um, you know, a little note that's going to date us and tell us how, how old we are. Just when I was in the 18th district downstairs in patrol, I would use the New York example, right? The early 90s and this is what happened and Bill Bratton and the, you know, broken windows theory. And some of the cops would look at me with like a, I could tell, I'm like, are they, are they not getting what I'm saying? Am I talking too fast? Because I get animated. <laughs> and I realized that many of them weren't even born when this was going on. I have a yeah, lot of you're young- finally getting to the point where you can say I was, I was, I was paying attention to these. You know, you're getting to the point now where I could say I was a cop before you were born. Exactly. Right? Yes. And yes. So, yeah. <laughs> That'd be the grumpy, the curmudgeonly old man. Um, no, but that's that's true, right? It was a different time. It was a different time. Now we look. Part of the podcast idea was to kind of give insight to policing who we are, what we do. Um, so my next question for you really is, you know, as you progress to the NYPD, as you maybe went back to school, I saw that you did get a master's degree from Harvard. Did your educational experience overall kind of open up doors for you or give you a different perspective on policing or say, hey, wait a minute, maybe I want to become a chief like you did? How was that educational experience? Yeah. So first, it's important to note the NYPD actually paid for my Harvard education. Harvard and the NYPD paid for it. The NYPD, to its credit, gave me a year off to uh, go get the degree. They do send their officers uh, who are motivated. They'll send them to graduate school, give them the time. So I owe that. um, I owe both my support from both my my masters um, to the NYPD. Um, they valued education. But here's the thing. So sometimes I'd, they'd say, oh, we need a guy to do policy work. And we need a guy to like do computers, you know, mm-hmm. which basically means data entry. Oh, he went to a good school. He can do it. Like I hated that. I fought that tooth and nail. Um, so you do get pigeonholed a little bit if 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 you, you're good with data, with policy. But on the other hand, like what I loved about policing was that at the end of the day, you were measuring things that were very tangible. Mm -hmm. You were measuring, you know, how many people are getting shot, how many people are getting killed, how many people are getting victimized. And, um, you know, some of those measures can be subjective or imperfect, but homicides are not. I mean, homicides are clear as day, an indicator of how a city's doing. So I guess what I'm saying is my education really led me to value what works. It combined with my policing mentality sure. to say, I want to consider evidence. I want to do what works to make a city a safer place. And, you know, as I went on in life, I said, some, a lot of times it's public safety and policing related. And other times the policing have, police have taken some pretty unhelpful approaches, right? And and I think a lot of that, if we talk about it, has to do with drug policy and overdose. Um, and so if you ask how my education influenced my career, I think two things came together and catalyzed. One, just this, what I always felt was a very healthy, no-nonsense approach to good police work. Are you are you really catching the right person or not? Mm-hmm. Are you preventing shootings or not? Are you preventing homicides or not? No, you know, smoke and mirrors, song and dance. And then the education part is is a real a real respect for evidence, a real respect for uh, for 
taking the right evidence and drawing the right conclusions. And so I think that was really important when I became a chief to say there are certain things that we want to double down on in traditional policing, like getting guns off the street, like closing shootings. Then other things like overdose where we need to change what we're doing. And it was my education, I think, that gave me a perspective on that. And that's a perfect transition to my next question because, you know, you hear a lot nationally in – Policing now is like we're going to engage in the community. And, and a lot of times when I hear that, I always like say like, well, how? How are we going to do that? Or, or is the agency just saying that, right? Um, you had a really interesting article uh, in 2019 in the New York Times. And, and I do have to say your articles are, are very helpful to me. Um, oh, thank you. Where you talked about when you were the chief of Vermont, you sent several officers to the National Memorial for Peace and Justice Museum in Montgomery, Alabama, to see and firsthand, you know, civil rights issues and I'm just going to say it, you know, really like abuses that polices, police agencies were, were part of. And I guess what I'm asking is like, where did that come from and how did it affect the officers, if at all, and make your agency better in Vermont? Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, I took a trip to, to the, it's the lynching memorial in the slavery museum. That's the, 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 the common, you know, the everyday name for the Memorial for Peace and Justice, because mm-hmm. it, it is this very compelling and moving testament to every, you know, confirmed instance of a African-American being lynched, right? And you think you, some people might roll their eyes, that's laying it on thick, lynching hasn't happened in, in quite some time, but it's like, it's in the memories, the living memories of grandparents in the African-American community, and it's it's something that's lurking uh, in so much of how they view authority, because there are cases where... Um, Sheriffs or cops would literally open the cell door and hand a prisoner over to be lynched um, on flimsy or no suspicion for things that would never justify anything like that ever. So I was trying to tell my cops, listen, you're in Vermont. There was never a documented lynching in Vermont, which is something that always remind me. But you know what? Like when you're a motorist, you're not thinking, oh, this is police officer Jones from Vermont. Um, you're thinking like at least in the back of your head. And then if you're older and you're direct experience, even up to the 50s, 60s, 70s, um, authority in America has given African-Americans a terrible raw deal, including just like abject violence and not just, you know, shootings of unarmed people or under questionable circumstances. But like, you know, a la George Floyd, where you put a neck on a, a knee on a neck for eight minutes till someone dies. I mean, opening the cell door as a cop. And handing a prisoner over to be lynched. I said, I just want you to understand that that's in the background or it's sometimes the forefront mm-hmm. of people's minds. When you're at a car stop at one in the morning and it's just you and the driver, the driver doesn't see things the way you see them. They have this legacy. You can't deny this legacy. And the fear is not only in the forefront yeah. of their mind. It's baked into the, the culture, the history, the DNA of the black experience in America. I just wanted my cops to understand that. No, I mean – Right. Yeah. No. Listen. You got, I, I apologize for interrupting you. I, I was as oh, you're telling as you're telling that story. I'm thinking of um, a particular officer that I had. Right. So the 18th district for the listeners that know is a big part of West Philadelphia. Some of it is the University of Pennsylvania, and then we have mm-hmm. that big dichotomy. Right. You go 10, 15 blocks west. It's a lot of poverty, African American population, a lot of gun violence. We had um, particular officer, and it has big become and was and is a very good officer, but came from um, a white suburb. And now was put in a commercial corridor to walk a footbeat of all Af- an African-American neighborhood. And to his credit, really like, 
I noticed like something wasn't right, right? He didn't feel comfortable. He didn't look comfortable. I walked with him a few times and he just said like he just feels really, really out of place. And it was one of the yeah. first times in his life where he was speaking with and associating with African-Americans. No fault of his own. It's just where he grew up. Um, and that whole idea of put people in there, you know, look look through the situation through their lens. And he, he did some training, had some other experiences, long story short, and is one of the best cops out here, loved by the community, problem solver, just a good guy. Well, right. What implicit bias training aims to do to various degrees of success depends on the approach and the, and the evidence, but tries to show you what you might be thinking without realizing it, right? That there are certain biases and just the way you're framing things. So I thought what was missing was understanding what the other person might bring to the, to the table. I remember when I was a young cop in East Flatbush, Brooklyn in the late 90s, um, I did a car stop where I just noticed um, a driver wasn't wearing a seatbelt. And I pulled the man over and he was an African-American man. He was older than I thought he was going to be. He was in his, I think, 60s or 70s. Okay. Um, his wife as well. They were terrified of me. The guy was like, please don't beat me up. Like he was, he was shaking. And I was so indignant. I was upset. I was like, this is a seatbelt. I'm a young cop. I'm just doing yeah. traffic safety. I don't want anyone to get hurt. Um, I was so indignant that he thought I would be the type of person who hurt him. I never realized like a man that age, especially um, living through certain times in certain places could have seen, I mean, like police would literally sick canines on protesters and rip their clothes off. You can Google those pictures of the civil rights protesters where police dogs are ripping the clothes off of black protesters. You have the fire department, like full bore um, hosing people down with fire hoses at civil rights protests, like where they're cowering in doorways. And so now like knowing that, I would have had a much more sympathetic approach to a motorist that's like afraid of me. I wouldn't have taken it so personally because I didn't understand the historical context. I just want cops to understand that. Like maybe in decades from now, hopefully we can pray that'll be gone. Yeah. But it's not gone. And, and, and good cops have to understand that. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things I tell the young officers. It's like you just – you have to understand it. You have to explain your actions. You know, the body-worn camera – uh, system is great for that. You know, the supervisors can see what we do, good, bad, and mm -hmm. indifferent. One of the things that I used to um, take some time when new officers would come to the district was uh, the 18th district is the location where the move bombing happened in the 80s. Yeah. Um, wow. So Officer James Ramp was killed, and the police officer lost his life, but the city of Philadelphia also dropped a bomb on a house. Um, and that is part of. That's out here. I mean, it's here. There are people that still remember it. There are people that get upset about it. We've had two major riots, as you and I talked to beforehand. Mm -hmm. uh, that was That's part of the fabric of West Philadelphia. And you just sometimes saying, hey, this officer wasn't even born when that happened doesn't cut it. You know what I'm saying? That just, just Right, because the institution was around when that happened. And institutions, good institutions strive for continuity. That's a positive feature of an institution is it's, it's a continuity of culture and values. But when there are things askew, continuity means they persist as well. And then you start inheriting a bit of that often if you're part of that institution. I mean, and that's painful, but it's true. You know, and I think like so folks overstate the case. Sometimes if they're looking to slam police, yeah. but I think police also don't admit it is that, that it's a factor as often as they should. No, absolutely. I think, you know, um, 
the race conversation is one that police haven't totally figured out yet as a profession to have openly, honestly, and with Yeah, you got to have it head on. You can't. Policing is at the crucible of race. You, you got to. Police are so brave about rushing into dangerous and uncomfortable situations. Not in this case, but they have to be if we're going to make progress. Yeah. Yeah. I, I say this story. It's, we're a little off track, but I think it's. It's kind of an entertaining one. I, when I, I grew up in a very diverse area of Philadelphia in the northwest section where white, black, Latino, Asian, um, it was a gay couple across the street from us. That was my norm. And when I went to the police academy uh, 2002, early 2000s, um, my academy cl- homeroom essentially wasn't as diverse as my neighborhood. And I, I felt like I was like, wait a minute, why it's a lot of Caucasian males here? Where's everybody else? Um, But our department really has done a good job over my time, my 19 years, I think. Obviously, you can improve, but diversifying not just the department, but the ranks and where people are in the department. You know, putting more women in. We have right now we have six women, I believe, as patrol captains for the first time ever, which is a big deal. Yeah, no, no, that's definitely a big deal. And I know, you know, you have. I mean, listen, at the at the helm of, of your department, you have like one of the um, foremost African-American female police leaders in America. So all the ingredients are there. It's just it's just such a complex city you're dealing with. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, complex issues here in 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 our short podcast. I'm going to ask you law enforcement versus a public health approach to crime, the the addiction crisis. How do we. Do you combine them? Do you? How do we fix this? Yeah, listen. <laughs> I'm going to say they're combined, whether you like it or not. Right. The, the thing about public health is it's very expansive in its own definitions. It's about very complex systems that come together to affect health outcomes, not just at the individual level, but in, at, the, at the population level. Like the definition of public health is 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 morbidity, mortality at the at the community level, okay. not at the doctor's office. Right. So. Policing plays into that, right? It's this government system that that is present in an entire city. That its job is to project government resources and priorities into like every street corner, every home is needed, or as people call, right? And then the things it responds to are things that like are direct um, that directly implicate health, whether it's a, a, a shooting, a stabbing, a killing, vehicle accidents, overdose. Um, even things like robberies, maybe you come away unscathed, but the trauma of yep. a robbery affects you and the people around you in a way that has health impacts, right? So, so you know, this idea that policing is somehow at odds with public health, I think I think sometimes start with one end, cops are like, public, what the hell are you talking about? I'm a yeah. cop. The public health is for, uh, you know, people over at UPenn Temple. And then public health people who are critical of, of a lot of the things that police do that actually have collateral consequences and harm health, um, hold policing at arm's length. I think in a way that's now coming home to roost is like not functional. Um, so I, my research and my, my policy interests concentrate on, um, on understanding that policing has health outcomes that every self-respecting chief of police or superintendent or, you know, commissioner says, I want to, 
basically, I want to improve health. I want to reduce the mm-hmm. outcomes of violence. I want to reduce the outcomes of death. I want to reduce the outcomes of very risky behaviors. And they don't just want to do it for like, you know, one area, like University City, sure. right? They want to do it for the, the entire city. city. Yeah. That's, that's the definition of public health. The problem is two problems. One, um, they don't measure success in terms of they measure success as like the murder rate or the number of guns seized or the number of people we put away which is not a real good health outcome, right? Those all strive towards health outcomes, but I wish that they would go one step further to measure improvements in health. And then doing that, the second thing is they'd be forced to measure some of the negative consequences. Like we've really left it up to the critics of policing so let me to ask point you, out the negative consequences. What, what's that? What's the one step further to measure? One step first, instead of just saying like, uh, um, you know, robberies down or, uh, you know, we've decreased drunk driving or we seized a million kilos of the latest drug mm. to say, look, we, we've worked with researchers to show that this has increased uh, longevity. It's decreased disease in our community. It's made people more healthy, more resilient by measuring that. Like yeah. public health measures health. Okay. Policing measures arrest, but they should be measuring health, Right. And the obvious answer, the one that just resonates right away and is the least tricky is like is, is murder, right? If you're reducing murder and shootings at, at the citywide level, you, you are creating a healthier, more resilient, less traumatized city, right? But then you want to go a few steps further and do that for uh, drug enforcement and addiction. Do that for overdose, for driving drunk, for, um, for all of those crimes as well. And, and then the last thing is um, – the critics have been really quick to point out the negative consequences of use of force, the negative consequences of uh, incarceration. Police leaders and, and, and city government should internalize those measures. Like doctors, when they perform surgeries, also measure the infection rate. Okay. Police should go one step further and say, we're doing these things, it's reducing violence, but we also you know, are having these negative consequences. And then engage in a conversation to say, we want to continue to lower violence. But we're going to work on ways to do that with with fewer collateral consequences, because if cops don't measure that, the critics will measure it and it'll perpetuate this adversarial relationship. One, one of the things that be mindful how I say this, I guess kind of frustrates me is like when we look at, oh, we made an arrest. We got the guy with a gun. He's arrested. Move on. And then we forget about, you know, how that. Where does that all fit into the the scheme of everything? You know, is that does right. that does that person have several kids who now doesn't have a father? Exactly and, and right. You 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 may have disrupted um, a gun carrying person in a way that would prevent a shooting um, or prevent you know retaliatory shooting or homicide. But you may have also disrupted a family. You may have also taken like a wage earner off the off the street. I'm not saying so. Don't do it. I'm saying be cognizant of that exactly. and put the services and interventions in place that account for it, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, and one of the things we I see here in Philadelphia anyway is there there are dozens, I mean literally dozens of uh, government agencies and people and nonprofits and volunteers that want to do the work. We just have to get a little more organized and cohesive in it. No, it's true. There's a lot of grant money and uh, and philanthropic and and innovation-minded money pouring into Philly, especially in the drug space. But um, I don't know. It would only be as good as as it is a coordinated interdisciplinary response that has to include police. On that note, uh, I'm going to ask you this, and and this certainly is uh, um, no easy answer. Uh, We spoke earlier before we started to record about the neighborhood Kensington – which is kind of really struggling with specifically opioid epidemic, fentanyl. 
the opioid epidemic itself, you know, how do we fix this? You know, I, before I made captain, I spent about 10 months as a lieutenant in the police detention unit, which is essentially the, the jail for the police. Every place, everybody would come here before you were processed and either let go or sent to our county prison. Right. And I would see, really open my eyes to a different viewpoint. You know, you would see people coming in addicted to drugs and some we would just release because they were, they were charged and they had no bail and they could go on. And they would say like, well, what do I do now? I'm homeless, I'm addicted, I'm just gonna go get high again. Others would get sent up to the county prison. It didn't seem like we, it, I just felt for a lot of the people down there. Um, and the addiction I saw firsthand, like really how bad it was. What do we do? Not to put you on the spot. Yeah, no, Kensington, um, I think is a unique challenge because it, of how, as you say, like how challenging it is, how dire the situation is there. Like. Um, there are a few places that I know of in American cities that are, are as up against it as much as Kensington is in terms of the drugs, the poverty, the crime, lack of economic opportunity. And I mean, I, you know, it's almost Kensington calls for like, so, you know, Philly has access to treatment. It has syringe service programs. It decriminalized second municipality in America to de facto decriminalize non-prescribed buprenorphine. Right. So it's like doing a lot of good stuff. But I just think like if there's any like you take what Mayor London Breed is doing in San Francisco by isolating the tenderloin and really doing like an all out approach. I think you got to go 10 steps further with um, Kensington and and so you could tell like, hey, Brandon, I mean, it's like almost an ambush to ask a guest to solve the Kensington yeah, problem. No, I know I, did that. In, in, there's in, a disclaimer with that question. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> yeah, No, of course. <laughs> it really needs this all out. Like if, if there's an, a place, I'm not talking about launching a war in some destructive sense. Yeah. But you really need to pour tremendous resources into that neighborhood and coordinate it. Right. I mean, there should be not only a cop on a foot. There should be like a cop on, on a foot post. You know, on, on nearly every corner with the instructions not to be hammering people suffering from addiction, but rather just to keep those corners safe so people can get to and from work without worrying. Right. You want to have people um, understanding that, like, you know, in their home, they're safe from burglary. They're safe from like a lot of the theft associated with subsistence uh crimes for drug use that you need. I mean, I could only imagine like I know that Philly was doing this like. Even sanitation, getting in there and keeping those streets literally clean. And then there needs to be tremendous economic development resources poured into it. So what I always would say is that the best policing can do is create a vacuum, meaning it can it can suck out crime. But something's got to fill that space. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you are stuck with all the difficulty of creating a vacuum and maintaining yeah. a vacuum. So if you stick with that metaphor, policing's a vacuum. It can suck out the crime, but that's the limit of what it can do. So when gentrification is nipping at the corners of a neighborhood or you have a neighborhood where, you know, there's 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 a lot of people waiting to pour money in like right away. Bam, like gentrification for better or for worse fills the vacuum. New businesses fill the vacuum. Right. Economic opportunity fills the vacuum. If, they, if none of that is happening. Imagine how desperate you have to go to the lens to just keep a vacuum going for years. Yeah. And so I think policing is that those street footposts I described and a good police work and tamping down the violence is that vacuum. Philly's got to come in and fill that really quickly with a lot of the other things that would stabilize Kensington. And I think that's the type of partnership that's needed. But hey, what I'm saying is sort of like 
maybe it's a little more nuanced than your average response, but it's still like you're asking me to fix one of the toughest problems in urban America. Yeah, literally, literally in urban America. And, and I'm not, you know, the, the co- I was yeah. a cop there 20 years ago. Um, the cops and supervisors and the captain of that district, I mean, they do. They do an amazing job with what they have. Um, the dichotomy or the thing that they they seem to, you know, deal with a lot is like there's officers on the corner. You know, how do we keep the addiction, addicted population safe but respect the needs of the people that actually that live there as well and their needs, you know, because sometimes right. the addicted population and the residents can can go at it for obvious reasons. And no, listen, and that's an interesting dynamic when they were looking to open the overdose prevention mm-hmm. site. The biggest uh, pushback came from the community, you yeah. know, and it wasn't like this monolithic, we're a beleaguered community, just got the site in here, we need to prevent overdoses. A lot of people in Kensington were like, wait, 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 it's bad enough as it is. I don't want this next door. And that's a reminder that like these um, debates are much more nuanced than people give them credit for. I think a lot of reformers, politicians, activists, cops say the community and the community wants this. The community doesn't want the police. The community wants something other than the police. The community. No, it is always, always much more uh, heterogeneous than that. Right. Totally. And the pushback on the overdose prevention sites proves it. That's, um, that's an issue I paid really close attention to. Uh, we don't have that out in West Philadelphia, but they closed down in the, la- the last couple of years. There was, uh, they were going to open two, two or at least one. Now they're back in the talks of opening two uh, prevention sites or safe injection sites. And it, there's so much involved in it you know, you're talking about human life. You are um, keeping people alive. I know New York opened one at least, if, I, if I'm New correct. New York opened two. They just were like, you know, typical New York style. De Blasio on his way out was like, I'm doing it. Like, get out of my way. Mm-hmm. And, and we did it. Philly could do – you know, Philly has that type of uh, attitude too. I mean, I, I've seen some movies about Philly. I think you could get – screw up the attitude to F you. We're doing it. Uh, New York did it. And look. It wasn't the apocalypse. Harlem still exists. Okay. Life is still humming along. It wasn't all. I don't think they have the widespread effect people hope they do. I don't think they reduce the overall overdose rate as mm-hmm. much as people expect them to. But they're not a horseman of the apocalypse. Yeah. They're just like, oh. Yeah. It's just, it's a complex issue. You know, I think we have to really, especially here down in Philadelphia, we have to respect both sides and really listen and acknowledge that it may not. We may not satisfy every point of every side, but um, getting into our next point, you know, we spoke earlier about some of my previous experiences as, as a captain. Um, you did some writing and research on use of force stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you did an article, I think it was a New York Times article you did about police officers in America um, when we, law enforcement response to people in crises that have knives how we should do that, how we should be trained yeah. in that. You know, I, I just like to touch on that a little bit because, you know, it, it's it's hammered in policing. I think it's changing certainly now with trainings to de-escalate. It's okay to take cover. It's okay to back up as I back up from the microphone. Um, you know. Yeah, listen. No, I mean, watching the shoot when you were the district commander and Walter Wallace was shot by your officers, that made my blood run cold because they were like, running away from the guy, trying to keep other people away from him. Like he was literally chasing people down the street with a knife. 
super tough situation. It wasn't like, and, and his family members called for help, right? It wasn't like a cop just busting in on a situation and, and typically you see a pretty quick shooting. Like it was a genuinely, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's being litigated. I'm sure that like the city doesn't want people talking about it, but that was one of the harder situations I've, I've seen in policing with a knife where cops are trying not to shoot, but they don't know what else to do. We'll spend a lifetime looking at that as a difficult incident. Um, but a lot of times, yeah, you know, cops are taught a person gets within 21 feet of you. They can stab you faster than you can react. And you need to act decisively. You need to shoot. And I wrote this article saying, listen, a lot of times the knife is not always about you. It's about the person trying to commit suicide by cop. It's about a call for help. It's about a person who doesn't know what the heck they want. And screaming at them, drop the knife. You should point a gun at them. If that doesn't work within two or three screams, it's not going to suddenly start working. Yeah. So – Use physical distance. Use not just cover, but put a, a cruiser between you and the person mm -hmm. as you move around. Cops hated that op-ed when it came out. I got so much hate mail. I got this and I got support mail from a lot of cops, sure. but was like saying, I'm glad you, you're thinking this way because we need to go this way. But a lot of cops were like, I had one cop say, I hope your family gets stabbed as you stand by and try to use your newfangled new uh, age tactics. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And you know what, though? I think that was before George Floyd. Now, after all that's happened, I think I think that, frankly, that op-ed's going to be on the right side of history and it's weathered better than the critics have weathered. But you're right. Like the, the gun, I remember they handed me that gun in 97 and in New York City where you couldn't have a gun. It was impossible to get a carry permit. You know, you they just here's your Glock, kid. You're a cop now. I looked at it like, oh, my God, mm -hmm. I felt different from the moment I had it. It still feels different. But here's what I'm saying. It's an insurance policy. That gun is an insurance policy when all else fails to get you home safe and protect other people. It's not such a great problem solving tool. And when you're dealing with people who have emotional crises, it's not a great convincer, right? And I think we were taught as young cops, like it's the final word. A knife is dangerous. You're gonna use that thing to get home safe. And if they don't listen to you, you're gonna make sure that you control that situation, use force and get home safe. I think we'd be really, really well served. I mean, you know, cops roll their eyes and they say Scotland's different. Let's isolate all the ways that Scotland's different and just look at the times that unarmed Scottish cops are dealing with men and women with knives. Yeah. They shoot a tiny fraction of the ones we shoot, and it's very rare if ever that they get seriously injured. Now, granted, sometimes they do get slashed. They're not killing people anywhere to the degree that we do, and they're also not getting sent home in a box as often as the mythology of policing would suggest. So I'm not saying like we got to go become the Bobbies, but if we isolate out those situations where you have a Scottish cop or a British cop facing down a man with a knife, what they're doing is effective and it doesn't take human life to the extent that we do. And a lot of these people with the knives are people in, 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 who need help. They're a mess. So anyway, I can go on about it, but I do think that, um, that, that there's a lot of progress to be made um, in, in that. And also, frankly, just as since we broached the topic in shooting at cars, right? Shooting at cars policies are all over the place in yes. policing. America, in New York, they had a policy to stop shooting at cars, um, I guess, in like 72 or 73. So okay. like well over – about 50 years yeah. ago, the NYPD enacted a policy. You can't shoot at a car unless – if the guy's shooting at you with a gun from a car – you get to shoot him. If the guy is committing like a terrorist attack using the car and plowing, you get to shoot him. But in the standard situations across America where the car is bearing down on you, the NYPD is clear. You got to just get out of the way. Don't shoot. Shootings within a year or two of that policy getting enacted dropped 40 percent in New York. Wow. 
Wow. 40% if you look at the over two years from the moment that it's in research is called an interrupted time series model. You have this, okay. you know, um, you have this graph and then all of a sudden the intervention, you stop shooting a car, bam, it drops 40%. And New York City cops are not victimized by getting hit by cars to any appreciable degree whatsoever. Sure. Yet all across America, you have cops shooting into cars, they hit the driver, now it's an out of control car. They hit um, a passenger, right? You have that cop in Balch Hills or Balch Springs, Texas, shot that young man just fleeing an underage drinking party. Yes. He's a passenger. He's yeah. a, just a, a kid, a Jordan, I believe his name may have been. Um, Jordan Edwards. There's just been some really kid. bad shootings involved, this type of stuff. For shooting just... in a car. I know you started with knives, but shooting at cars is another way that police need to adapt with the times and then not. Needs to be a, a policy across the country. Yeah, you know what? I was thinking, you know, I don't have this on my list, but I was just thinking this, you know, with, I don't know, was it 18,000 police agencies across the country? Yeah. You know, is it time where we have universal policies across the country with national standards? Right. Well, listen, I mean, what's a national standard that we can't point to? Miranda, right? Miranda is a national standard, yeah, right? Um, and that's because the Supreme Court had to step in. So one of the ways we get our national standards is by waiting for a case to make it up to the Supreme Court. And usually there's folks arguing against it. If the court is the Warren Court, you'll get reform like Miranda. If it's the present court, you might not get reform. I don't think that's the best way to pursue national standards is to wait for judges to to like opine on the yes. matter, right? We're professionals. We're, we're, if we want to call ourselves a, I'm, I'm not a cop anymore, but in the big, the royal we, if, if we want to say that policing is sure. a profession, we can't wait for judges to tell cops what to do. We have to figure out what to do ourselves. Back in Burlington, I had a cop that had a car bearing down on him in the middle of downtown in the aftermath of a robbery. Okay. And this was a robbery suspect who was revving his engine, coming right at him on um it's called, oh God, I don't even remember the street. I'll remember it in a second. College Street, whatever. But the point is, um, the cop could have shot him dead to rights by any understanding of constitutional law, could have shot the guy. He said, it wouldn't have done any good. I just would have had an out of control car continuing down the hill. Yeah. It was out in public. I got the license plate. I know what the guy looks like. I just get out of the way. I gave that cop, and I say just get out of the way. It wasn't trivial. Like he had to jump out of the way. I gave him the Chiefs Medal for Valor. I said you had to make a decision that that a human life hung in the balance and public safety hung in the balance, and you made a decision that that was decisive, saved the life of a human being, yeah. and you and they still arrested him for robbery. A day later, they got the guy. I, I think you t you hit on a, a a good point, which is value essentially de escalation, right? Value. I don't say inaction, but when Commissioner Ramsey was here. Um, he started a medal, a, the, the de-escalation medal. It might have a different name, but right. it's like we value just that, de-escalation. Did we have a barricade and the guy had a gun and he had hostages? And we'll wait all day long with our specialists, you know, our SWAT, our hostage negotiators. Or the cops responded to a domestic and it was a contentious situation and they took cover and concealment and talked the person out. We recognize here in Philadelphia, it's one of the things I actually am really proud of, to give out those types of awards where you're like, all right, this could have gone really bad the other way. Um, but the cops had the, the knowledge and wherewithal to you know, say, I, hmm. And that's exactly right. I put a quote on the roll call room wall in Burlington from Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu was a Chinese general, wrote The Art of War. He wrote it in 500 B.C. 
And the quote is, to defeat your opponent without fighting is the highest skill. Now, some folks will like to call them citizens' opponents. And you're like, Listen, if a guy's bearing down on you in a car trying to get – he's your opponent, right? If a man has a knife in his hand and he's like, I'm going to kill you. In that instance, he's an opponent. Yeah, like, I'm yeah. sorry that I can't have more flowery, yeah. anodyne language. But um, – <laughs> But but you don't just have like social workers and reformers and like, you know, liberal chiefs saying mm. de-escalate, don't fight. You have the greatest general of all time, mandatory reading from Marine Corps officers saying to defeat your opponent without fighting is the highest skill. That is the acme of generalship is winning without firing a shot without. Yeah. And, he, and then one of his commentators says your goal as a general should be to take all under heaven intact. And they, they, they privilege this idea, they emphasize this idea of, of, of ending the situation where you prevail but you did not fight and everything is intact mm -hmm. is, is, is what you have to strive for as a warrior. So my, my flipping it on its head a little, if cops are like, I, want, I like the military model, like F everyone, I like militarized. Okay, fine. I used to say to them, I want you to be the most militarized cop you can be mm -hmm. if you follow what Sun Tzu is asking you to do. There you go. <laughs> Take all under heaven intact and win without fighting. I, I will go. I said, see, I'm, I'm, you can tell I'm getting animated. I, said, I will go on the news. I'll go in the New York Times. I'll say I have the most militarized police department in the nation because it is one that is that that will go to any length to win without fighting because Sun Tzu said so. But you know, that's cops often don't have that in mind when they're thinking of militarization. They have like the combat helmet, the heavy vest, and the rifle and, in mind. And but, you know, we will. See what I'm at. We can save this for the next episode. But you know, cops and change take yeah. i mean it's just um that's one of the good things about having a lot of younger officers which we do here um maybe sometime if you're ever in philadelphia or visiting friends at penn or jerry ratcliffe at temple we would love to have you um no i'd love out to here. and cops have to know who to trust right like yeah. they, they a lot of times the reform comes from quarters that they they don't entirely trust or understand but then there's a lot of comfort in the old way of doing things and and like every human being, they want predictability in their work. They want trust in their work. And so, yeah, we got to we gotta lead them in another direction. Well, listen, Brandon, I really appreciate this. Uh, one more time, Brandon Del Pozo, right? Correct? I said it right? Yeah. Um, the former chief in Burlington, Vermont, NYPD executive, researcher, a lot of good stuff. I follow you on Twitter. So he's on Twitter. He's got a lot of really good writings for policing nerds. Uh, this is one of the cool guys to, to follow. Oh, um, thank you so much, man. Listen, I think you're, you're up against it in Philly in a way that um, is noble. You're fighting a great fight out there. And, you know, I mean, it's a city of over a million people, right? Yeah, it's about a million point two right now. Yeah, listen, there's a lot of lives that are depending on you guys getting it right. So good luck with that. Be safe. Great. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it.